Open your Bibles to the book of Philippians, if you would. Philippians chapter 2. And for the next three services, this morning, tonight, next Sunday morning, we're going to be dealing with the part of our spiritual life that we are involved in right now, which is the part between the time that we got saved and the time when we are finally perfect. And uh, and that is all just one big struggle. Um, I saw on Facebook this morning someone who had written an article about uh, about the fact that they are find themselves, they wake up one morning and find themselves in the winter of their lives. And what they mean by that is spring, summer, and fall has passed, and now they're in the winter, and they, they're talking about how they don't know how they got there. Um, you know, back so many years ago, they were young, and they um, assumed that everything was going to go for go on forever. You know, you're not, it's never going to, we're never going to get to the end of this. It's a, you know, you, when you're a child, you think life is forever. And I can remember when I was a child, when I was a teenager, growing up, and I thought, I don't believe I'll ever see the year 2000. I thought that. 21 years of the past now. And, uh, and I thought, man, if I, if I live to be, if I, if I live until the year 2040, that would be unreal. But if I live till the year 2040, I'd be 90 years old. Well, that's not so far down the road, and I don't know if I'll make it to 2040. But they made this statement, which I thought was interesting. And, uh, and that is that we're never going to be any younger than we are right now. That's sobering, isn't it? We have been younger, but we're not ever going to be any younger than we are right now. And we don't know how old we're going to be. So the only time that we actually have is right now. And, uh, and the older we get, the more uncertain the future becomes as far as this earthly, uh, existence is involved. Um, but, uh, but the good thing is the future is very bright because when this part, the winter of our human life is over, that means the best chapter of our existence is just beginning. And, uh, and, and, and can I encourage you to not just say that, but actually believe it? People live, they're Christians, and they say those things, but they live as if that's not true. But it is true. For those who know the Lord, it is true. And, and we can, we can rejoice in that and be grateful. The book of Philippians, one of my favorite books in scripture, it's very practical, and it's written by a man who is sitting in a prison cell. And uh, and things are not ideal in his life at this time that he's writing this, at least not from a physical perspective, a fleshly perspective, uh, because he's sitting in a prison cell. He'd probably rather be somewhere else, but he's sitting in a prison cell. And in the book of Philippians, he's writing to this church, and he talks about 
the importance of maintaining joy whatever happens in your life. Chapter 1, he deals with how to maintain joy even though you're dealing with problems. Chapter 2, he talks about maintaining joy while while dealing with people. Chapter 3 has to do with maintaining joy while dealing with possessions. That's a hard thing to do. And number and chapter four, he deals with maintaining joy while dealing with priorities. But in chapter two, Paul talks about interacting with other people. Do you have a problem with people? Anybody else? Nervous laughter everywhere. And the reason that's there is because we all know what that's like. In the past 24 hours, I've talked with three people specifically that I know of that have talked about problems that they have with people. One one person had had ordered a sub-sandwich or a couple of sub-sandwiches at at a sub-shop. And the sub-shop is not, uh, you know, they're open for carry-out and drive-through and all that kind of stuff, but they also have this thing where they have curbside pickup. And so this person had placed an order online for curbside pickup, and the rule says when you get there, then you park and you call them, and they will bring your order out to you. You you order it on your phone, you pay for it on your phone, so it's just a matter of getting your food. So this person got to the sub shop and they're sitting in the parking lot and they call nobody answers and they call again and nobody answers they wait a few couple minutes and they call again and nobody answers and then in a little bit they call again and nobody answers and then they call again and nobody answers five times they call and nobody answers the phone and then they get in they say well I guess we'll have to go out go in and get it and they, they get out walk in and there are people walking around, they're talking to each other and all this kind of stuff. And so, and the more she sees, this person gets more irritated. So somebody finally comes up to speak to her, and the question she asks is, is your phone not working? And uh, they looked around and said, well, no, I think, I think it's okay. So well, I've called five times for somebody to bring my order that I've already paid for out to the, the car. And, uh, and so they said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Let, let me, what's your, what's your name? And gave him her name. And he said, oh yeah, here it is, sitting right here. Well, that didn't help things any. Been sitting there the whole time. And so this person was dissatisfied and said, I'm going to call the corporate headquarters because it's unacceptable. But that was not enough. When we were talking on the phone, this person had to tell me about it. Because there was some satisfaction in sharing the fact that these folks had done a poor job. They don't like that, but they're, in a, in a sense, trying to get, get their revenge in a roundabout way. It doesn't hurt the people that didn't do their job, and she's still stewing over it, but it's there. Paul talks about how to deal with people when they don't do what you want them to do. Um all of you know that, that my wife has said many times that I have the, the only person she knows has a personal relationship with everybody on the road because I'm always talking to people 
who are other people who are driving. They can't hear me, and my wife can hear me, and she says, uh, just let it go. You can't do anything about them anyway. And, uh, and I know that's true. Doesn't change the fact that I get aggravated. I get annoyed. It's just the way, because humans are made that way. So Paul, in chapter 2, deals with learning how to get along with people. Now, here's, here's an interesting thing. Do you realize that learning how to get along with people and how to deal with people that, that you don't agree with or who people annoy you or aggravate you, did you know that that's part of the sanctification process for a believer? We can't help people if they know that we don't like them. We can't help people if they know that we're aggravated with them all the time or annoyed with them. One of the greatest battles that we face as humans is learning how to get beyond the fact that other people are just like we are. Because you know what? People get annoyed with me. And if I'm going to have a relationship with them when I don't think I've done anything wrong, they have to be willing to look past the failures that I have. And the same thing needs to be true for us. And so in chapter 2, Paul deals with this, this matter of sanctification in our lives. Notice uh, in, uh, in, in verse, verses 1 through 4, we're not going to read all of these, but in verses 1 through 4, he mentions an exalted ambition. Notice what it says in verse 1. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, and if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill me, um, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. We're supposed to get along, and the goal, Paul says, is unity. And that's not always easy. But not only we see an exalted ambition, we see an essential attitude. Verses 5 through 11, these verses are very familiar to all of you. Many of you probably have them memorized. It says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. We cannot have unity. We can't get along with people unless we have a proper spirit. And so often when we get annoyed at others, they may be doing something that annoys us, but it may well be that the reason we're so annoyed is that we don't have a proper spirit toward them. We can't expect other people to be what they are not, and 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 we don't reach that, we don't attain that goal ourselves either. Christ has set the example, and the example 
is one of humility and of obedience and a servant's heart. We talked about humility last week. That's a challenge for every one of us. But a Christ-like spirit requires humility, seeing others as better than ourselves, looking upon their things instead of our own, exalting them to a position that is above our position. So we see an exalted ambition, an essential attitude, and thirdly, an educated approach. In verse number 12, it says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now that's an interesting verse. And I've heard message after message after message on that verse. But this is not saying that we have to manage somehow to make our salvation what it ought to be. It's not talking about working to become, to become, uh, um, to become, um, to get to the place where we are worthy of our salvation, because that's never going to come. It's not about making ourselves worthy of salvation. It's not about making ourselves perfect. It's not about us doing anything, because we can't do anything to make ourselves what we ought to be. He does not say work for your salvation. He does not say to work on your salvation. He does not say to work at your salvation. He says to work out your salvation. Now, if you know the Lord, that means you're already saved. When you got saved, three things happened. Number one, you were reconciled to God. The barrier between you and your God, the God of eternity, the creator of the universe, that barrier that was broken when Adam and Eve sinned and put us in a position where we didn't have an opportunity or a way to communicate with him, that barrier was removed when you trusted Christ. And you have a relationship again with your creator. The second thing that happened was redemption, which means your sins are forgiven. You no longer have to worry about paying for your sins. We talk about people who do things that offend us. And what do we often say? He's going to pay for that when he sees the Lord. The Lord's going to take care of him when he gets to heaven. The truth is, We may lose rewards when we get to heaven, but our sins are covered. Every sin we've ever committed, they're done. There is, there are, is sowing and reaping on this earth. And God will judge people, I believe, while they're on this earth for what they do that is unjust to others. But when we get to heaven, we are not going to pay for our sin. Jesus died to do that. And I'm grateful that that is true. We will lose rewards because of what we've done. But but we're not because we haven't attained the standard God wants us to, to attain. We haven't fulfilled his his calling in some ways. But uh but our sins are covered. That's redemption. The third thing that happens is regeneration. We are made alive. We gain new life. We used to be dead in our sins. When you get saved, you are regenerated. Now, between the time that those three things happen at salvation and the time that we are transformed, which is the time 
that, that we lose this flesh and get new bodies, new heavenly bodies, in between that time, we are in a state of conflict because we are spiritual beings who have been made alive in Christ and who are already sanctified in Christ. In other words, when God sees us, he looks at us through the blood of Christ and he sees us as being perfect. But we know we're not perfect because we've still got this flesh. And so there's a, a conflict that's going on there. It's a battle that we have. So Paul says we're to work out our salvation, which means that we're going to be working on that transformation. We're going to be changing. And it's really not anything we do. It's what God does. And I'll show you that in just a moment. But redemption is a one-time act. Transformation occurs at the end, and sanctification is what happens in the middle. So how is that done? Look at verse 13. The Bible says, For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Three things I want you to see this, this morning. And this is the point of the message. Number one is the premise. What does the Bible say? For it is God which worketh in you. Now here's an important truth. We do not have the ability to accomplish God's purpose in our lives, in our own strength. And anytime we step into the mirror, we look in the mirror and we say, boy, look at me, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. I have, I've accomplished this, I've accomplished this, I've accomplished this. All of these things I've done for the Lord. And, and I'm, I'm so grateful I've been able to accomplish all these great things for the Lord. The truth is, we don't accomplish anything for the, for the Lord except that God does it through us. It is God which worketh in you. It is God which worketh in you. That is a foundational principle and is something we need to get ingrained within us and understand that that's the only way that we make any progress spiritually. It's God which worketh in you. There's nothing of any spiritual value that we can, by our own will, bring to pass. It is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. There's nothing I can do in my flesh that is pleasing to the Lord. To the Lord. Now the premise that's God which worketh in you presupposes four things. Number one, it presupposes that you're saved. God cannot do his work if his spirit's not present. An unsaved person does not have the potential for becoming godly because he's still in his sins. Number two, sensitivity. Not only must the spirit of God reside in the life of a believer, he must have the believer's attention. We are not, if we are not aware of his presence, and if we're not sensitive to his voice, God's work will not be done. We come to church. We don't come to church just to fellowship. We don't come to church just to, to sing. We don't come to church just to socialize. What is the primary reason we come to church? It's for us to worship. And how do we do that? We do that not by what we offer the Lord, because we don't have anything to offer Him. We do that by listening to what He's trying to do with us. It's about His will. So many people come to church and they want it to be exciting. They want to enjoy it. 
The truth is, joy is always the result of doing the right thing. It's not the primary goal. It's the reward that comes. And you come to church and you focus your attention on the Lord and what he's trying to do in your life and you, you become sensitive to a spirit and you let him do the work in your heart and you leave here with a great deal of joy in your heart because God has done something of value in our hearts and lives. There must be salvation. There must be sensitivity. There must be submission. Once the Holy Spirit has spoken to us, we must be willing to obey. The Holy Spirit speaks with conviction, which is making us aware of those things that are displeasing to God. Caution, making us aware of dangers that can cause defeat and tragedy in our lives. And by calling us, which is making us aware of his will. Those are the things we need to be looking for. Is God convicting me of something today? Does God deal with our hearts? If you come to church and you never feel convicted, then there's something wrong with your sensitivity. If I come to church and I preach and I don't feel convicted, there's something wrong with my sensitivity. Because the Spirit of God wants to work in our hearts. I'm sure that you, like everybody else in this room, each of you individually, can think back to times in a service, in a church, that you remember specifically where God did something very specific in your heart. That's the way it ought to be every time we come to church. Maybe not as as big a thing as, you know, it was on a, a Thursday night at youth camp when the Lord spoke to my heart and said, I want you to yield yourself to full-time Christian service. I didn't know what way and, and how and all that kind of stuff, but the Lord spoke to my heart. I responded, and God changed my life that night. Well, you may have something like that in your past that you remember as well, but what about last week when you came to church? Did God do something in your heart then? What about what about the last time you spent time reading your Bible? Did God do something in your heart then? God's supposed to be working in our heart all along. And for us to be transformed the way he wants us to be transformed, we must be listening and then responding to what he says to us. And then number four, steadfastness. We must be consistent in our walk after making those decisions. So the premise is, it is God which worketh in you. The Spirit of God lives within you. He's working in you to accomplish His purpose and His will and to give you guidance about what He wants you to do. Secondly, what is His purpose? Look again at verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. God's purpose is to influence both our will and our conduct. Now we have we have a choice. God says, you know, I, I, there there are times there have been times in my life, and my wife knows about this because we've talked about it. There have been times in my my life when the Lord spoke to me and said, "We're not doing that, or we're not going to do this anymore, or whatever." There were there are things, and there have been times when I've said to her, "We're not we're not." This, this is changing. We're not going to do this anymore. And she usually says, I agree. Because she sees the same thing I see. 
But there have been times when I've started to go into a restaurant and we turn around and walk back out because I believe the Lord put within my heart a caution about what we might encounter. You say, well, that's a ridiculous thing. Not going to a restaurant. I don't think that's ridiculous. I think the Lord, the Lord impresses upon us if we're being sensitive to Him where we ought to walk and where we shouldn't walk and what we ought to do, what we ought not to do. Um, knowing the will of God, and uh, I'm going I'm to talk about this later in another message, but knowing the will of God, it's, it's not, we don't, we don't get out of the will of God because of what we don't know. We get out of the will of God because we refuse to obey what we do know. That's an, a, an important principle. We, we talk about, well, I didn't know what to do. God's going to show you His will. He's not hiding it. He wants you to know His will. And knowing His will and doing His will is really a very simple process. It's about just obeying and moving forward with a sensitivity to the Spirit of God and a willingness to do what He wants you to do. God's purpose is to influence both our will and our conduct. He'll influence our desires. When we think about what we want, God's purpose, God's will should be of primary importance. Um, knowing God will, God's will is not about doing what we want to do. It's not about our plans. It's not about our pride. It's not about our passions. All of that needs to be put aside for the sake of making sure that our desires conform to God's will, because that's what's important. That's, that's, that's part of our sanctification, is learning to be conformed to God's will, our desires. And then, and then, that will lead to deliberations that are right. That's how we think about what we want. If we are concerned about what God desires, then our deliberations, our thinking, which is part of our decision-making process, is going to be constrained by that focus. Um, deliberation involves weighing the rewards for obedience and the results of disobedience. Um, you know, it doesn't matter how old you get. It still is a battle to remember that there are consequences for every situation, everything you do. And, uh, and we see it a little more um, easily and we talk about it more freely when it has to do with physical things. For example, when I was younger, when I was younger, uh, you know, less than 40 years old, uh, Wow, it's almost half my life ago now. Yeah, that's that's sobering. No, not quite half yet. But but when I was forty years old or younger, I used to eat anything I wanted, whenever I wanted, whatever I wanted, what amount I wanted, didn't matter. I'd eat and 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 I just went on. I would go to bed at night, sleep fine, and all that. Kind of, I mean, everything was wonderful. It was it was great. I could eat whatever I wanted to, and there was it never seemed to be any consequences. That's way into history. That's way back now. You eat. I eat certain things. I eat too much of it. 
and then I pay the price. There are consequences. And you would think, after doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over again, when the temptation came to eat a certain thing, I would look at it and say, oh no, no, I know what happens if I eat that. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have that same kind of issue and you go ahead and eat what you shouldn't eat anyway? Has that ever happened? And then when you start feeling bad, you deal with the consequence of it, you look at yourself and say, oh, you dummy. Why did you do that? You knew this was going to happen. Why did you do that? And, uh, and you get mad at yourself because you're the one that caused what you're feeling right now. That's a physical illustration of a spiritual principle because we do the same thing spiritually if we're not careful. We yield where we should not yield because our deliberation is failing. We don't stop to think, no, wait a minute, last time this happened, I remember how I felt afterwards and all this stuff. You know, we, I remember what I should have done, what I should not have done, what I did and I shouldn't have done it, what I didn't do and I should have done it. Those kinds of things. We remember all that and we think, I, I knew that this was going to happen. Why did I go ahead and do this again? Because our thinking gets twisted. Satan is a master at making us forget the consequences of wrong choices. And, it's, and, it, and you say, well, that, that was true when I was a teenager. It's true for us as we get older too. Things don't change. So we have to be willing with our deliberation to, to weigh the rewards for obedience, the results of disobedience. And then that leads to making right decisions. The, our, our decisions are the result of our deliberations. If you, uh, if you follow your heart, which is supposed to be the deciding factor in so many cases, you know, uh, um, there was a, we watched a movie on the Hallmark Channel. And this guy died, or was about to die, and the wife and the daughters were sitting around, and uh, they're, they're weeping, and they're concerned about what's going to happen to their dad, and the mother says, we need to have faith that our love will, bring, will pull him through. That our love will sustain him, or whatever. Well, love is a great thing. But there have been lots of things that I love that didn't survive. Our faith is not in our love. Our faith is in our Lord. But that's, that's just one example of how our thinking gets twisted if we're, not, if we're not careful. The result of our deliberation, faith in what God is helping us to know we ought to do or ought not to do. And then determination which is strength to follow through. But that determination, that strength, comes not from within us, but from, from our, our God. So we see the premise, it is God which worketh in you, God which worketh in you. The 
the um, the uh, uh, purpose, right? Thank you. The purpose, and that is both to will and to do of His good pleasure. And then number three, number three, we we'll see the product, and that is of His good pleasure. The end result will be that our lives will please the Lord. Now, I'm going to give you several things very quickly that are true in the life of a Christian who is pleasing the Lord. First of all, there will be attributes that please the Lord. The Bible says the fruit of the Spirit will be a part of what is demonstrated in our lives if we're pleasing the Lord. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Those things will be a part of who we are. Those are not things that you can manufacture. Those are things that are the result of the Holy Spirit doing His work in our lives. I can't manufacture love for somebody who has offended me in a severe way. But the Spirit of God can give me love that I don't possess so that I can love them in spite of what they've done. I have trouble sometimes forgiving people, but God gives me the grace to forgive if I'm willing to let Him fulfill His will and His purpose in my life. So there will be attributes. We don't have the ability, but God works in our lives to produce those things. Number two, there will be attitudes that will please the Lord. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Forgiveness is an attitude. Mark 11.25 says, When you stand praying, forgive. For if you, if you have ought against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And then number three, there will be actions that will please God. Hebrews 13 and verse 16 says, But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices God is well pleased. To serve is to do good, and to share is to communicate. Those are things that are well-pleasing to God. And those are evidence of the fact that God is working in our lives. He's changing us. That's all a part of God's sanctification. Verse 13, the verse we've just looked at, For it is God which worketh in you both the will and to do of his good pleasure. That is the hinge on which the door of our Christianity swings. It is the door between salvation and glorification. It is that which governs what we do in this part of our lives, which is the transition between those two things. It's when we are sanctified. We're getting more like, becoming more like the Son of God. And that verse is the key. It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's not what we want, it's what he wants. And it's not a matter of us figuring out what he wants, it's just a matter of us being willing to trust him and obey. Just yield ourselves. We we don't end up not being what God wants us to be or not doing what God wants us to to do or not being where God wants us to be. We don't, we don't end up there because we don't know the truth. We end up there because we don't do what we know, do know that God wants us to do. We spend a lot of time trying to figure things out that God's already given us information about. 
And it's just a matter of trusting him and obeying him. The foundation of our sanctification. Tonight we're going to talk about the fruit of our sanctification. Next Sunday morning, the fulfillment of our sanctification. Next two verses in Philippians chapter 2. There is fruit of the sanctification that God does in our life. And there is a fulfillment that comes when we are where we ought to be. But it all rests upon our willingness to let God do the work that he wants to do in our lives. Work out your own salvation. How do you do that? Remember, it is God that worketh in you, both to do and to will of his good pleasure. That's the thing we ought to want more than anything else in this life. It is the key to joy. It's the key to getting along with others. It's the key to pleasing the Lord. Let's stand together. His bow eyes closed.